Welcome to the Soul Mama podcast, where we have deep and honest conversations about healing, awakening, spirituality, and wellness on the sacred journey of conscious motherhood. We ask how we can walk this path in a way that nourishes, elevates, and heals us and our children. We deserve space and time to slow down and tune in to our hearts, to heal ourselves, and to honor our highest callings. It starts with us. I'm Nahanda Truscott-Reed. I'm a mother, holistic wellness coach, writer, and speaker, and I am passionate about all of the ways we can raise our consciousness and come into more alignment and power as women and mothers. So we can heal the past and make more empowered choices for the future. Our stories and voices matter. It is my intention that these conversations inspire, motivate, and move you on your own Soul Mama journey. I'm so honored that you're here. Today, I'm speaking to Danny McLean. Danny is a writer and journalist and reports on race and reproductive health. In 2018, she received a James Aronson Award for social justice journalism. Her work has been recognized by the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association, the National Association of Black Journalists, and Planned Parenthood Federation of America. She is a mother of one and an author of the book, We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood, which was published in 2019. In this conversation, we go deeper into Danny's motivations for the book. We talk about the state of affairs in the US. We talk about mother work and the concept of the black family. And Danny reflects on her own personal experience of mothering her young daughter against the harsh political realities of America. Greetings, Danny. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the Soul Mama podcast. Thank you for having me. I came across your work because being a mother myself and working in this space was really interested in the nuance of being a woman of color in the motherhood space and raising children of color um, and really understanding what that means and how doing that in a conscious way kind of brings up history and politics and society. And your work was a really good insight for me just to kind of begin to navigate some of those questions for myself. So I'm so glad. Thank you for writing your book. And that's probably a great place to start. So you wrote uh, We Live for the We. And just that title was so inviting for me because I feel like it goes so counter to the me, I, mine, ego-based kind of drive that this society kind of pushes upon us. And it brings us back into this space of community focus and collective goals. And so talk to me a little bit about the motivation and the journey to writing the book. Sure. So I am a journalist and I've been covering uh, reproductive justice organizing in the, in the U.S. for the past seven years. And so when I first started The Beat, um, you know, I was clear that the way that most people cover reproductive rights is by it with a focus on contraception and abortion. Um, you know, like how, to, how can we not have children? 
um, how to avoid, um, you know, if it's not the right time or our economic uh, circumstances are not what we need them to be. Um, how do we maintain access to abortion and contraception? And pretty early in um, covering this new beat, I was introduced to black, uh, mostly black uh, organizers, mostly black women who introduced me to something called the Reproductive Justice Framework, which advances the human right to have a child, to not have a child, and to parent the children that we do have in safe and healthy communities. Mm. And so that really just opened up this whole world um, as I started following the work of organizers and activists who were um, supporting families and supporting um, families of color and Black families. And so because I had been doing that reporting um, in you know the preceding years, when I got pregnant uh, in 2016, I had this whole network of sources to tap into as I started having my own questions about how am I going to raise this child? What does it mean to parent at this moment? Um, I, had, I had also been covering um, uh, Black liberation organizing, Black Lives Matter organizing. So this was very, and, and it, that was beginning in like 2013. So I was very aware of the ways in which Black mothers of slain children or slain young people um, who had died at the hands of police or while in police custody. I was very aware of the way that, say, Michael Brown's mother or Sandra Bland's mother or um, the mother of Jordan Davis, um, you know, they had to advocate for their children even after their children died. They had to stand in front of news cameras and say, you know, my child might be villainized um, in the media right now, but let me tell you who my child was as a human being and let me let you know that my child was beloved. Mm. Um, And so I just had all of these kind of things swirling in my mind uh, while I was in the midst of my own pregnancy. Um, and I realized that the questions that I had as a first time mother, uh, I was in a very lucky position because while I have strong relationship with my own mother and with my, um, aunts and with like elders in my family and community, and I could ask them, you know, for, uh, I could talk to them about the questions that I had. I also had access to this vast network of organizers and activists who themselves were parents and mothers. And I could, I realized that um, I could put these questions to them. And so that was one motivation for the book. Mm -hmm. The other piece that I think is really important is that um, during that, so my daughter was born in August, at the end of August, 2016. So during that summer of 2016, I started reporting a story on um, the maternal health crisis. So you you know, and your listeners might know that in the U S you know, the U.S. legs behind all other, you know, so-called industrialized first world countries when it comes to our outcomes around um, pregnancy and birth, both in terms of, you know, maternal mortality uh, and infant mortality is, is really not, not great as well. So, and the statistic yeah. that I kept hearing, and, and so th- in the past, this had been talked about yeah. as a mat- the maternal health crisis. And only recently have we started to be more specific and accurate and say, this is actually a black maternal health crisis. Yeah, because, exactly. Right. And this is the disparity. And this is the statistic that we hear is that black women are three to four times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy uh, and childbirth related complications. Um, indigenous women also, um, their the, the uh, disparity around their um, maternal health outcomes is also terrible. Um, but so I was hearing this stat, this three to four times more likely, and every I kept hearing this stat, but I wasn't hearing the why. Exactly. Why are we dying? Right. 
why are we dying during birth or in those um, in that postpartum period? And so I started reporting a story where to try to answer that question, what's going on? Um, and again, because I had been covering the reproductive justice movement, I called my sources, I called my contacts uh, who were who began telling me about something called birth justice and who really encouraged me. They said, if you want to know the answer to this question, um, you need to talk to black birth workers. You need to talk to black doulas. You need to talk to black midwives and you, and you need to talk to some black OBs too. Um, and so that's what I did. Uh, and the reason that these folks were telling me that is because they were saying, when you look at the data, you're going to see that it's racism, um, some, you know, sometimes newly called uh, implicit bias, right? Unconscious bias on the part of the healthcare system that plays a huge role in why we're dying. Um, and so if you take that out of the equation, mm-hmm. or if you, if you talk to birth workers who are at least, um, aware of the role that racism plays in the healthcare system and actively working to combat that, you're going to get to some of the answers of what we can do to improve our outcomes. So those are some of the, and those are some of the things that led me to write the book. That statistic has come out recently in the UK and it's actually five times more likely for a black woman in the UK to die than their white counterparts. And the conversation, as I've heard it, has still been around well, what's wrong with the black women of, you know, why this is happening. You know, yes, there is a kind of a resistance to kind of admit that there is some Im- implicit bias or some institutionalized racism. But then there's this push to look at, well, poverty could be the issue or language barriers could be the issue or lack of education around, you know, uh, things that women could be doing to prepare for their births. And it's like, whose responsibility is it to address this problem? Like, like from my understanding, black women in non-colonial places actually fare better than women who are living in Western countries where we're supposedly, That's right. you know, more developed and have these, these benefits of the healthcare system. But what it, it highlighted to me personally was that as women, it's one of the first times that we come into direct contact with the system. And that's kind of the time at which you then almost give away quite a lot of your power because it's this unknown territory that unless you've got mothers and grandmothers like nurturing you through, it's where even if you're a kind of anti-system person, you tend to still trust in your doctor or, you know, the healthcare provider. And I think that's the the relationship that begins to open up because you then realize like, but that system's not for you. It's not it's not in your best interest. And so how can we protect ourselves and protect our children and become much more aware of the ways that we need to navigate so that we're not in a space of fear? Mm -hmm. Because I think that was the thing that came up to me when I was reading the beginning of your book, kind of like what you were in, in that space of pregnancy and, and reporting was heightened sensitivity and fear. And it's the fear and the physiological effects of the fear that have an impact on how birth and pregnancy and mothering happens. Right. Yeah, there's so much that you just said that that has my brain firing. So what you were saying about the blame that's placed on black women and like, is it about poverty? Like this isn't actually about black, about race. This is about poverty. That's what, that's why it's been so important to have celebrities like um, Serena Williams and Beyonce come out and talk about their birth stories 
because these are, you know, global celebrities, right? So you can't say that, that you know, they were in these situations, um, whether it be with blood clots in Serena Williams' case or preeclampsia in Beyonce's case, where um, they're experiencing things that in some women's um, cases have led to death, right? And, um, you know, Serena Williams talked about her uh, healthcare providers not listening to her. Like she's identifying the symptoms and they're not listening. So I am really, I appreciate the fact that they've come forward with their stories because it pushes back against this notion that like, oh, this is just something that low-income um, Black women are dealing with. It's not. Also your point about uh, you know, another thing we find when we look at the data is first generation, um, black immigrants to the U S they do fine in terms of their birth numbers, right? Um, their children, it's with their, their children who have had the experience of a generation of the American experience and the, just, you know, the kind of way in which life in this country can tear away at the black body. Then we start to see their numbers being in line with you know, uh, Black American numbers. So there's so much that you've touched on that just um, drives home the ways in which these narratives can be distorted. And so one of the things I'm trying to do, and that you know, is to um, intervene in these narratives. Your point about um, the fear, right? The physiological impact of fear and anxiety. I write in the book about how, in the course of reporting that story. Um, and also in the course of just following the news, this was the summer of 2016. This was the summer that Alton Sterling, who was a black man in Baton Rouge, was killed by Baton Rouge police. Um, uh, another man, a black man named Philando Castile was killed by uh, law enforcement outside of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. I was realizing, I was recognizing the ways in which watching these news events unfolding was making me feel sick and unsafe in a way that uh, worried me. I didn't know what the impacts would be on the feet, on my fetus. And so I, I had to make a decision to stop following the news and to stop working um, until after my daughter was born. Um, and this was something that was very important in the conversations that I had with the mothers uh, and the parents that I interviewed, because I realized that this isn't just what you deal with when you're pregnant. This is going to be my life now. Every time I see, right, every time I see um, some like, and, and it's all over, especially now in the age of social media, all you have to do is get on Twitter. You're going to see someone be disrespected, dehumanized, a child uh, rough, you know, roughed up by a school-based police officer, um, just all the things that we have access to. And every time we see a Black person being treated in that way, we think, what if that were my kid? What would I do? And so one of the questions that I put to many of the parents that I interviewed was, how do you survive that fear? What are your mm -hmm. strategies so that you're not just living in constant you know, anxiety and so that you're not passing that anxiety onto your child, but you're still encouraging them just to be a human being and to be free and to trust and to live. And so those were the strategies that I was looking for as I did my interviews. And I think that is the crux. You know, I definitely felt that pull, you know, being pregnant myself, I'm, I'm a mother of two and there were there is the heightened sensitivity that happens anyway. You know, I just felt a lot more emotionally, spiritually, energetically anyway. Um, and then it was like this lens of looking at the world in a way of like, what are we all doing here? Like we've got things so completely off, like, and it's only that coming back into the nature of the miracle of, of holding and giving life that I think really shakes 
away that that um that mist that we all kind mm. of get desensitized to in mm-hmm. everyday life and yeah. all of a sudden it was like I'm looking at the world and the societies that we've created these structures and I'm like we've become so departed from the ways we I hate to say should, but the ways that we could be living, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that sense of alignment, that sense of, um, of, of being connected with self and with others, just being in a place of strength and love and alignment. Like that right. just doesn't feel like it was what was happening. And the news obviously being a fear-based, you know, narrative only serves to highlight that. And I mm-hmm. think when you then add on to that, the lens of, of racial disparities and the ways in which black people are kind of, you know, victims to this in increased ways, it's really hard to just not go in the opposite direction and just be like, I'm just going to create a really safe bubble in my right. house just right. for me and my family right. so that we can all be happy and shut out the world. Exactly. And, and so coming back to the we live for the we, there's this call of like, okay, well, yes, you know, you want to create joy and want to create safety and trust in your children and in yourself. And yet there is this sense of responsibility for the community and for liberation and for active support of, of change. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate that? Right. I mean, and the thing about that is that you, we actually, even if we didn't have that instinct to like um, be, to proactively create communities that feel good to us, and our instinct was just like, uh, how do I create a bubble of safety for myself and my family? The reality is that we cannot do that, right? I mean, we can't really just retreat in our homes, um, and which is why you know my book talks about, okay, now I'm taking my 18-month-old to a toddler program for the first time where she has to learn how to socialize. You know, I'm trying to get her socialized. Um, and what does it mean if I'm taking her to a school where we're one of the few Black families and something like biting or scratching or something that's very normal for a toddler of that age becomes like even more fraught with um, potential like danger or, you know, it makes me more afraid because I'm thinking like, is my kid going to get even more harshly punished if she scratches this little white boy? Right. So this was, that was the introduction to all the ways in which things that can just seem like normal activities that we engage in as families become, take on this additional, um, dimension because, because of our race. Um, and so, yes. And so, but, but to your question about like the, we live for the, we component, I mean, so that's what I found was that because we can't just create these bubbles, you know, we do live in the real world. Many of the parents who I spoke to talked about how important it was to not create bubbles for our kids, but to help them create communities, um, or to create communities in which they can really thrive. And so that means having other adults around them who obviously love them and have their best interests at heart, but also putting them around peers who you want to see them grow and develop with. Um, and so I'm trying to think of like an example. I mean, I talked to, I talked to the founders of a childcare collective in New York City called Little Maroons. Uh, it's actually in Brooklyn, New York who talked about, you know, what it meant to set up a childcare collective for their young ones. Um, I think they set that up almost 20 years ago. Um, and it has, and it exists to this day and it has a real African centered focus. I mean, even think of the title right, or the name of the organization, Little yeah. Maroons. 
right? I mean, they're teaching their kids like about yeah. resistance in very subtle ways, but in teaching about the history of freedom fighters and revolutionaries um, in age appropriate mm-hmm. ways. And so, um, so I had the opportunity to talk to, I t- interviewed someone right here in my hometown. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. Her name is Kimi Moyo. She started a program called Sankofa, which was a youth development program for teenagers where, um, and they started that program again about 20 years ago, um, where they, it was a Saturday program where they worked with teenagers on um, cultural literacy, uh, media literacy. Um, they took the students on a, a tour of historically black colleges and universities to say, this is an option for you. Um, and they talked about, um, Kimia Moyo herself had lived with her family in Liberia for a while. And so she was introducing a kind of um, pan-African or diasporic framework to teenagers. And so I learned through these interviews that I did that there are ways uh, to create communities and institutions um, for our families to get the kind of care and support and education that we want for them. Mm. And that's interesting because in the UK, although there have been those attempts at kind of Pan-African Saturday schools or alternatives to the school system, um, it, it feels quite few and far between. And I think one of the main things that I recognized whilst reading the book was that in America, the, the perception that I have is that there is an established black middle class who have a kind of financial and economic leverage that they can support, you know, their the education and the opportunities for the next generation in a way that we don't see in the UK and perhaps in other places in the world. And so I wondered if there was a difference in approach that we need here in kind of creating that community. Because what I've seen happen is that funding stops and then there's nobody above a certain uh, financial bracket who's really willing and investing at that level because the higher up you get, the more white you get. And then, you know, there's that kind of disconnect. So economic structures and class and I guess financial support for these organizations is something that I feel is going to be really key in addressing how we do that outside of the US. Yeah. I mean, but here as well, it's the same, right? So I've talked about Sankofa. Sankofa no longer exists. uh, And it, and, Mama Kimya talked about, you know, um, the, she said that there are a couple of reasons why. One, the major one being funding, because it was all volunteer run, right? There wasn't really, I didn't get the sense that it was like super flush at any point. It was just a bunch of people who believed in it, who just volunteered a lot of their time and put a lot of their own resources toward it. Um, and then the other thing she said was that the rise of social media uh, mm-hmm. necessitated a shift in how they needed to start reaching teenagers and that she just wasn't as an elder, she wasn't really able to do that. But I'm thinking about um, another group that I interviewed um, or that I read about in the book, which is Detroit Summer, uh, which is kind of rooted in, uh, it was founded by Grace Lee Boggs and Jimmy Boggs, who are two Detroit um, activists and organizers. They started the program, I think in the early nineties um, and it's multiracial. It's not black only. Um, but it really was an effort to teach young Detroiters about why they should have love for their city, even though the city was going through a period of massive disinvestment and white flight. Um, And again, and so they were doing a lot of like intergenerational storytelling, having elders talk to young people about the history of Detroit, um, painting murals, doing community gardens. Again, I think much of this is a labor of love. You know, that organization does exist to this day. 
Uh, but they've had they've had periods where they went underground or not underground mm-hmm. in the political sense, but that where they had to stop doing programming because they didn't have the funds for it, you know. So I think we struggle with a lot of the same issues here. Even if you look at like HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, they're certainly not funded at the level for the most part that predominantly white um, institutions are. And so uh, it's, I'm, I'm, it's interesting to hear you say that maybe there's like a difference in the, how the black middle class exists in the two countries. But I, I just want to emphasize that we, we have, we don't have that figured out here <laughs> either. <laughs> and so I wonder then with all of these conversations and examples, um, that you had, it's kind of felt really kind of thorough in your breadth of looking at you know, the, the areas at which people are making changes and conscious kind of activity to offset, you know, the, the disparities. Um, what you kind of came away with, obviously your daughter's still quite young. And so a lot of the kind of big life decisions around schooling perhaps, or where you're going to live, like right. th- those are still, I guess, open to, you know, decisions now. Um, but did you kind of come away with a clearer sense of, yeah, this is the way, this is the approach. This is for me, what feels good and what I now I'm going to invest my energy in for my daughter. Absolutely. So yeah, my daughter's three. Um, and, but I was really clear. So I started the book before she was born. Um, and I finished it when she, she had just turned two. So, but I was very clear in writing the book that I many of the questions that I had extended beyond um, the life she had lived so far. So I had questions about like, what am I going to do when she's a teenager? Like, how am I? So there's a chapter in the book um, called Body that's about basically like how do we teach our children about um, consent and like how to and like bodily autonomy. But how do we teach them these things that for the most part, they're not learning in school because our sex education is so broken for the most part in most states here. Um, but how do we teach them these things without only focusing on like the fear aspect of like, you must keep your body safe. But how do, how do we also talk to them about pleasure? And like, you are in charge of your body and you can find pleasure in your body. Yeah. Um, so this, these are things that I'm starting to introduce to her now on a very age appropriate level, like, um, you know, no you should never feel like someone has the right to touch you. If you don't want a hug or a kiss, you can say that you don't want a hug or a kiss. Mm -hmm. Even if that means telling, you know, your grandmother, you don't want a hug or a kiss. That's okay. Um, But I was able to interview the children, I'm sorry, the parents of older children, teenagers, um, to see how did these conversations shift as your child got older and having really interesting conversations with people about like, yeah, I found my son who's, you know, a preteen watching porn. And this is the conversation we had. It wasn't just a punitive, never watch porn conversation. It was like, what did you see happen? Um, did you notice anybody in that in the porn that you watched who looks like you? Oh, it was only white bodies. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, did the one? What made you think that the woman was actually experiencing pleasure? Let's talk about mm-hmm. like how you can tell if someone's actually having a good time and why that's so important. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, I mean, similarly, I, there was a chapter there. I have a chapter called Spirit, which is about like, how do you support your child on a path toward like developing a sense of spirituality, and, like moral, you know, grounding in um, a moral compass. And, um, you know, I, I have learned a lot through studying um, Buddhism and, and through meditation practice. My child right now, there there are ways to do it, but I haven't yet introduced her to uh, like a, um, 
um, mindfulness practice. But I, I, and I spent time interviewing people who set up the family sangha at a place called East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, Mm -hmm. which when I lived in Oakland, that was my spiritual community. And they've set up a family sangha where they are bringing in babies as young as newborns. You know, parents of newborns are invited to come and sit together. Um, They do have a practice. They are introducing toddlers to to, uh, mindfulness practice. And so we don't have access to that right now, but it gave me so many ideas for things that I would love to try with her. Um, and so, yeah, so there, you know, it was important for me to write a book that didn't only answer the questions that I have at this moment, but that, that answered questions that I knew I would come to as she, as she gets older. Yeah. And I think the whole, um, the thing that I see running through each one is that there's the default of protection in any of these conversations when we're talking about sex and consent, or we're talking about, um, birth, or we're talking about spirituality. There is this sense of like, I want to, I want to protect my child. And I also want to gift them with the tools that they're going to need to experience the positives that each of those things can bring. Um, And that's the balance and the nuance, I think, of, of motherhood generally. But then kind of doing that within this space where there is potentially a lot more to be scared about, it's kind of like a dual a dual conversation that feels like it's happening where it's like, okay, so this is society's take on X. And then in our home, this is going to be our take on X. And have you found those conversations (laughs) happening already where you're kind of having this subversive conversation around in the home, it's one way and in life, it's going to look like something else. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, one, one thing, so this just came up this morning because while my daughter, while I do my daughter's hair, I let her watch a cartoon or what she wants to watch. And so we were watching Peppa Pig, which, um, <laughs> there are so many problems with Peppa Pig, but my, daughter- Oh my gosh, it's so problematic. It, but then it's like, uh, well, I guess we can watch this. But so one, my biggest issue with Peppa is like the gender dynamics are just so weird. And then, so it's like, well, first of all, I just have to say this because I think this is funny. Like, this is too complex for me to introduce to her. But so I think it's so funny that there's the the only single woman, like unmarried, uh, like childless woman character is um, like Miss Rabbit or whatever. And she works all the jobs, all the jobs. So it's like, if you don't have kids, if you don't have a family, you're going to work every single job. Similarly, there's a, we have a, a show here called... Um, Daniel Tiger. I don't know if you guys have it in the UK. It's a, it's a PBS. Yeah. And it's the same thing. The one childless adult in the show works every single job. It's like, this is so bizarre that this is a message that, that kids are getting. Um, so, you know, it's like, uh, I think about how to counteract some of the image, even this morning when we were watching the teacher in the show was saying like, boys do this and girls do this. And I was like, I don't, first of all, that's an inappropriate way for a teacher to be dividing up a classroom activity. And how do I tell, how do I tell Isabel that without, she's just watching the show. She's going to be totally confused by what I'm talking about. Um, But I think for me, like gender and sex is something that I really struggle with because at three, she's so upset. She's not obsessed, but she's very interested in that. I didn't know that boys have long hair. I didn't know that boys wear earrings. And it's like, they do. And, you know, mom has short hair, like not all women have, 
even though you're obsessed with your Barbies that have long hair that look like weaves, even though they're black Barbies, like they have long weaves, like how do I have a conversation with you about like beauty standards and gender? So that's just a kind of um, garbled way of saying that things are constantly coming up and I, I have to think so quickly about, do I, do I intervene? Do I say something in this moment or is that just going to be too confusing? Yeah. I'm in the same way. I feel like, you know, some of, some of the things are so innocent, you know, like we, we question a lot of the programs and the books and things, and we're really conscious about having positive representations of black people in the house. And, you know, all of our images are, are beautiful black people. Um, and yet she, my daughter has still said, you know, I, I want long hair and I want my hair to look a certain way. And I'm like, how much can I do to counter the domination that comes across in the media and at school? And I kind of just take them all as teaching points Mm -hmm. where, you know, what I say is going to continue to be the same, you know, unless there's a major shift in my perspective. But for now it's kind of like, and this is beautiful and that's mm-hmm. beautiful too, but mm-hmm. there is more than one version or, and let's talk about this and let's that's talk right, about gender. Right. And it's, and you know, and it's kind of just infusing the everyday with a level of awareness that they realize like, oh, you don't just have to accept that. It's not right. just a given. It's right. not the default. There are alternatives and we can have that conversation. Absolutely. And so I hope that that just kind of develops as they as they grow and they're, capacity for understanding grows Mm -hmm. that we can get into those deeper conversations in a way it's going to be meaningful for them and And, for us and for us right because this is the other thing that I've noticed it's really made me aware of ways in which I have a lot of like learning and reprogramming to do so I have friends we have friends who are gender non-conforming um and one of the things that I do is I encourage my daughter to call adults um, like miss or mister or like auntie or uncle, right? It's not, mm-hmm. for me, it's not appropriate for a child to be calling an adult just by their first name. So I'll put, I'll put like a, you know, like what we call like a handle on their name. But then I realize we'll have like a, like a gender nonconforming friend or like a, um, someone who identifies as like masculine of center. And I'm calling that person, I'm saying like, say hi to auntie Molly. And then I'm like, why am I gendering this person? That's right. not appropriate. And so it's made me say, I'm sorry, I do this with my daughter, but what would you like? I want her to be respectful of adults, but maybe yeah. that doesn't feel right to you. What would you like yeah. for her to call you? So it's been this, you know, I don't, I don't claim to kind of have it all figured out. It's, there are also a lot of moments where I have to really think, slow down and think what is the appropriate way for me to show up in this moment? Yeah. And what things do we need to let go of? Mm-hmm. Because there's, there's a lot of things that we're holding on to. you know, I, I think yeah. about it as like, kind of like the colonization, you know, that still lives within us. Yeah. That even if we're kind of consciously working towards liberation and in this space of, of, of consciousness or wokeness, so to speak, there are these things that we still say and do, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, I've, when you talked about patriarchy in marriage, for example, mm-hmm. in your book, that was one of the conversations where I literally had to be like, ooh, yeah, <laughs> like, really? Like, I'm feeling called out here because... That was something that I strived for having grown up in a single parent home and kind of seeing that, I guess, the statistic around being a black mother was single parent, unmarried, 
Um, and there was a kind of negative connotation around that and the links to poverty and lack of opportunities and, you know, all the negative stereotypes that came from that. So for me, marriage was like an active goal mm-hmm. and an aspiration and likewise for my husband. So when we met and we both like, oh, you're one of those who, okay, cool, we could do this. Let's yeah. get together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for us, that has definitely been a, a kind of tool for um, up-leveling, you know, like our our... I guess our thinking and our plans and our economics and yes. the ways in which we're kind of structuring a family for, for our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the way that you talked about your own conscious cho- choices around um, separating from your daughter's father and how you've navigated that space and not seen it as a negative. I was really like, I, I hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually there is some kind of patriarchal um, beliefs that I'm still allowing into this space because of this kind of default to, well, daddy has the final say, or, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you know, mommy does this in the house, but daddy does that. And mm-hmm. it's like, I brought those things in, you know, not necessarily realizing. And so I wondered if you could speak a little bit about marriage and patriarchy yeah. and how you kind of position yourself in an amongst that mix. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that I have a lot of respect and admiration for merit for married people, like for people who are what you just described with your, you know, with you and your husband, like aspiring to that and then finding it and, and embracing it and making of it what you have made of it. Like I, I do admire that. Um, and I'm aware of the ways in which families that are headed by um, single people, the single women, un- unpartnered, unmarried women, are totally um, denigrated and um, framed in public discourse as being inherently broken, regardless of anything else that's going on in that house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the assumption, and we hear this in political discourse coming from the left and the right in this country. It's not like a Republican talking point only. We heard it from Barack Obama when he was running for president. Like we hear it from Democrats as well and from people who identify as progressives. The idea, as soon as you start talking about single parenthood, there are all these other conversations that pop up around like gun violence and you know the child is more likely to engage in gun violence and be living in poverty and be... Um, uh, you know, get bad grades and have poor health outcomes and all of these things that I think are a distraction from what we really want to be talking about, which is economic stability in families, right? Um, And so what that conversation leaves out is that often, even in a married household, when you have two people who are not working living wage jobs and who are struggling, even if they're partnered and married, you're, that's when you, that's when you are having the, not dysfunction, but that's when that's, those are the kids that we need to be talking about. Kids who are not, um, who don't have the economic support that they need. Now, my, my personal experience is that I was raised in a middle-class home by a single parent. I didn't meet my father until I was in my twenties. He didn't play a role in my life. There was no child support. There was none of that. Right. So I had the support of um, one one of my aunts in particular, but my mom has seven sisters, so we were like a close-knit extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom had like a solid job through, you know, my childhood. I went on vacations. I got, you know, I, I, I had a kind of middle-class childhood. 
So these stories that I've heard, they just never made sense to me. The fact that I should feel ashamed of being from a single parent household and I'm supposed to be like, why this country has a gun violence problem. And like, I just, I'm like, this is not adding up, right? Like this does not compute. And so, um, and so I think that that has shaped, you know, the fact that my daughter's father and I, our relationship did not work out. It's very, it's sad for a lot of reasons, but I never had that added sense of like, this is going to be terrible for this child, right? That never, I never had that kind of like, shame, fear component of like, I better stay in this so that like I can get, you know, so that this kid will be healthy. And so I think that that's part of what I'm trying to do in that chapter is to Mm -hmm. encourage us to let's talk about if we're serious about like really caring about families and children, we need to talk about living wage jobs. We need to talk about universal healthcare. We need to talk about, um, you know, the uh, universal childcare. We need to talk about so providing a social safety net that supports families of any makeup. Regardless, yeah. You know, um, but of course that's not, it's easier to blame people. And of course it's it's most easy to blame black women, right? Mm-hmm. Who have become kind of the face of like the single parent household. So that's part, and that's part of what I'm trying to do in that chapter. I also think that there's a, there's a historic, historical piece there that we forget, which is that black families were systematically broken apart. That's slavery depended on us not having intact family units. Exactly. Um, You know, children were sold away from parents. Loved ones were sold away from each other. Your chosen partner could easily be sold away from you um, or killed, you know, in front of, you know, in front of your mind, humiliated, dehumanized in front of you. That was part, that was necessary for slavery to, continue the way that it did in this country. So now this idea that, you know, a couple of hundred years later, we're supposed to be able to like match this like white middle-class idea of nuclear, of a healthy nuclear family. That's insane. When our families were systematically broken up for hundreds of years. Generations. And the, but the reality is we were not, we figured out new ways to build kinship ties and to build family. Um, and it didn't always look like the nuclear family. And mm-hmm. sometimes it meant, you know, multi-generational, it meant a mom and a grandmother and a child, and, um, or it meant someone who's not even a blood tie. And these relationships continued in the Jim Crow period over the Great Migration, where families might have been pulled apart because of someone was seeking an economic opportunity here and the rest of the family stayed there. So I just, I think it's important to look at the ways in which Black family has looked and survived over time and place what we look like today within that context so that we can take some pride in who we are and not just let this dominant narrative tell us that we're broken and we're less than. Yes. And just as you were speaking, I kind of had this vision of my dad's side of the family. So my father's Grenadian and I used to go and visit um, when I was younger. And so his family like there's maybe like 12 women living in one house with like all of their children Mm -hmm. and the men are never there. Um, and yet from my perspective, I was like, Oh, what's, what's with that? Like, is it a case where, you know, uh, there isn't the opportunity for long lasting, healthy dynamics between men and women? Is that something that's a response to, um, economic, you know, deprivation or is that, historical or, and I had these questions around what a healthy family 
should look like. Mm -hmm. But when I think about it, and then you make this point as well, that is kind of going back to more of the village kind of way of doing things where you're, you're responsible for more than just your child. Exactly. Um, and there's a collective sharing of the, the food giving or, you know, like it, there's a shared responsibility. And so perhaps even in my kind of, in, inversion of the colonizer's gaze, I was looking at like, this is dysfunction. But actually those children grew up with so many hands and so much love. Right. Whereas, you know, I just grew up with my mum. Mm -hmm. And so now when I look at even me and my husband, and I look at this nuclear family that we've kind of aspired to and strive to create, and we look at each other sometimes and we're like, this is too much pressure for just the two of us. It this is. is not healthy. Right. We don't have support. And I think because people assume you're the married couple, no one's really trying to give you that support either because exactly. they're like, you guys have got it. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And so it's a double-edged sword. It's like, yes, it's an antidote to you know, the ways in which we've been broken down historically. But at the same time, it puts us in a very vulnerable and delicate position where we're our children's sole caregivers. Mm. And that's not healthy necessarily either. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. I think that I don't, I think that married fam, like married couples also can lose under this, under this picture of perfection because, um, the idea is like, well, you, you all should have enough to provide for what you exactly. need, right? Like you don't need, you know, the, this is how it's, it's, it's presented that like, well, you have a male breadwinner because that's usually how it's presented. So you don't need, you don't need these social benefits, you don't need, you know, you don't need um, universal childcare because under this kind of patriarchal way that we think of the nuclear family, the this person is going out to, um, you know, make money and bring it home, and and you stay home and you take care of the domestic. So, I mean, that's that was the argument against a universal childcare bill that um, I believe it passed both houses here in the U.S. in the '70s, and Nixon vetoed it. And the idea was that it was like communist. It was going to destroy, you know, because then women would be like encouraged to go out and work. And so it's like we don't look at the ways in which this, these ideas that we have about the kind of nuclear family being the fix-all, really undermine the, um, really kind of like damage married folks as well. And but then, like you said, marriage becomes that shield. Like, oh, well, everything must be fine because you guys are kind of intact. Mm. So there's so much there. And I, it's, it's interesting because I think that chapter, there's been a lot of interest in that chapter. It's like the mm. chapter that's most often excerpted and like, <laughs> um, and that's great. I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm like very glad to be part of a new conversation around family formation. Mm. And so I guess just understanding, you know, mother work mm. and the kind of positions that black women, mothers of color kind of have um, and opportunities that we have one for some healing. I feel like a lot of these situations are about addressing what has happened in the past, understanding it healing it and then making conscious choices about how we, how we move forward and what we want to give to the next generation. But how do you see mother work for yourself and for our generation now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, so I'm thinking of, I'm thinking about the title, right? We live for the we. And, and it's, it's funny because I just said something about like being a part of a new conversation about family formation. But what's so interesting is that I really dug into the scholarship of Black motherhood for, to write this book. And so I was reading like the work of Patricia Hill Collins, who's a um, sociologist who has written a ton about Black family and Black motherhood. 
one of the, you know, mother work is what, what is a word that she um, kind of coined to describe um, the, not just kind of what we think of as like the domestic duties of, of being a mother, but kind of like the political, um, the, the kind of like uh, community oriented work that um, mothers engage in not on behalf of just their children, but a community's, um, you know, a community's children. So if I, um, if my own child is being discriminated against at school, um, I know that that's not something that just my kid is dealing with. Her classmates, her peers are dealing with, her black peers and classmates are dealing with that as well. If my child doesn't have access to good healthcare, that's not just a problem for our individual family. If I become, um, involved on her behalf, I'm going to be fighting on behalf of the other kids that don't have access to that good health healthcare as well. Right. So that I, I really appreciated looking back at the writing that she was doing on black motherhood and the language that she was giving to this. Um, mm -hmm. And then it struck me that when I was doing, I did an interview with somebody named Kat Brooks, who's a organizer in Oakland, California. She does a lot of work to support the uh, families of people who have um, been victimized by police violence. Um, so I'm interviewing Kat Brooks and she's telling me um, that she, that her daughter will sometimes ask her um, because, you know, she's raised her daughter, like going to rallies and political protests and sitting with families as they grieve, you know, uh, having lost someone to, to the police. Um, and she said her daughter, who at the time that I interviewed her was maybe 11, um, her daughter will, will say, can't we just like, do we have to go to that rally? Or like, can we just go to Disney World? Or can we just, you know, have a, have a day off? <laughs> yeah, have a day off. And, and Kat said, you know, she said, I tell my daughter all the time and it's harsh, but we don't live for the I, we live for the we. And when she said that, it just like clicked that. Here she's giving this powerful message to her daughter, but it also connects to this canon of literature on Black motherhood. That's essentially what um, Patricia Hill Collins was writing about. You know, that's what um, I'm thinking of some of the other, right? Audre Lorde and... Um, Even uh, Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison, for sure. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's this message that has bubbled up over the decades and, um, you know, from these Black women writers and thinkers when they are talking and, and writing about black family and black motherhood. And so that's what I think is our charge. You know, when you say like, what, what can, what sh can we do? Um, I aspire to engage in mother work. I aspire to keep an eye on my child's individual needs, of course. Um, but also think about what can I, and what can we as a family be doing to be worthy of the communities that we're a part of? How can we contribute how can we um, how can we be active participants in those communities? Um, and so, I think that's the challenge. Is there's so I, it's easy to see how people get caught up in their own world. There's so much to balance and juggle, but the challenge is how do we take care of? How do we see that as we take care of our own family's needs? It just can take a little bit more effort to turn our gaze outward and think, what can I also do to be of use? to others because um, our kids aren't growing up in a vacuum they're growing up you know they have to they are part of this world and whatever we can do to lay the groundwork for them to figure out how to engage successfully as you know in communities and as part of networks and as part of families I think that's that's um that's an important part of our charge 
Agree. And I feel like that's coming back to our true nature mm. as human beings on this planet. Like we're supposed to care and have empathy and compassion for each other. And if we actually placed our collective in intention and attention on building things that served us as a, as a whole and not just the few, one, we wouldn't be in the problems that we're in now. And two, we could begin to actually undo some of them. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like your your book kind of lays out, you know, these different areas in which we might want to think about these things um, and and leaves us with that question of, you know, what does that mean to you, you know, as an individual? What choices do you want to make in those spaces? Um, And so by having this conversation and by bringing that awareness, I think if we can do our parts in, in helping and signposting some of those choices, then that's, that's a good thing. And women can kind of feel into what that means for them right. in a way yeah in a That's way that for them their communities their families and and also not negating self because I think one of the things in the narrative of black motherhood as I've understood it is it's always this kind of self-sacrificial yeah. you know like struggle and you know striving and you know fighting against and that is really effortful um and i i believe is part of the reason why we see a lot of the the health inequalities that we do because there is this kind of burden that we take on and this responsibility that we take on so i guess the charge that i'd like to invite is is that we do that in a way that still honors ourselves and honors our energy and still make space and time for, you know, self-love and Mm self-care and show that to our children, that you can still be part of that good fight and you can still look after yourself. You can still have joy. We can still have fun and it doesn't have to be everyday marches. I think that that's so important. Yeah. And that's what you said about like, yeah, so everyone can feel into it for themselves because there's not a blueprint. Exactly. It's not like this is what, you know, step-by-step advice. It's like, you have to feel into it and feel what works for you and and your family. And, but I think, you know, I closed the book by talking about imagination and like how important just the power of imagining something different from this, right? If we can just like believe that, that we can do better, that we can have better. Um, to, you know, break out of these ideas about scarcity and can we imagine, um, you know, more freedom? Can we imagine more joy? Um, I think that that's what's lacking in, you know, in our, certainly like in our politics, like in our kind of mainstream ideas of, of, uh, you know, policy and like the, you know, it's like, God, there's no imagination there. So can we, how do we encourage that in our kids? Like we can Mm -hmm. do better than this. They're going to need it to make it through this life. You know, they're going to need to believe in the power of their dreams. Um, and so that's what I'm hoping for my daughter, certainly. And, um, yeah. And, and then, but how, you know, and learning how to teach that, how do you teach a child to like dream, um, how do you teach a child to trust their imagination? Mm-hmm. There's no kind of, um, there's no just one way to do that. And so I think we have a lot of uh, room to figure out what works, how to have those conversations. Definitely. And I think just to add to that, the sense of, you know, feeling like we necessarily need to place everything into them that they're going to need 
for the next generation. Like, actually, maybe they've come with it already. That's and we just right. need to get out of the way. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe the structures and the narratives and the things that we hold so tight to are the things that we're going to need to unlearn and let go of to give them the space that they need to do to create and imagine a new future. And hopefully we can be part of that journey and hopefully we can live to see some of that unfolding. And, and if not, you know, that unlearning is our part. That's mm-hmm. the part of the evolution. And we can take that and not feel like we're the ones who have to teach that. That's right. Oh, that's beautiful. I really appreciate that. I needed to hear that today. me too (laughs) trust me thank you so much Danny. it's been a pleasure speaking to you um and just learning more about your story and your work um and for people who want to read the book we we live for the we is available on amazon Mm -hmm. um and all other good booksellers i'm sure yeah Um, we live for the we the political power of black motherhood you can find it online you go to your bookstore and ask that they order it, go to your library and ask that they order it. Um, yes. And, um, I welcome connecting with folks on Twitter and Instagram and, um, just really excited about this moment in the conversation around black motherhood, people like Imani Perry writing her book, breathe a letter to my sons, Nefertiti Austin writing motherhood. So white, there are all these black, Yes, I've folks. heard of that. Yes. Yeah, Black folks really contributing to this new literature of Black motherhood that's quite lovely. Yeah. Well, thank you for adding your voice to that collection and for doing such a, a kind of thorough job because you you definitely bring in so many voices and so many examples that I think really help to make that a rich conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people wanting to follow you on social media, where, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram at um, Danny underscore McLean and I'm on Twitter at DR McLean. Perfect. Well, thank you. And I just wish you all the best in the rest of your motherhood journey. And may we continue learning and unlearning as we go. That's right. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate it. You too. You too. All the best. Thank you. Next week, I'll be speaking to Dr. Kimani Borland about her Rasta upbringing in Jamaica the lessons she's gained about health and wellness from becoming a naturopathic doctor, and how she juggles motherhood in the midst of it all. Until then, stay blessed. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to soulmamajourney.com for more resources and ways I can support you on your own conscious motherhood journey. For more inspiration, you can follow me on Instagram at soulmamacoach. Also get in touch via email through nahanda at soulmamajourney.com. I love to hear from you, what you thought, what you gained. Please take a moment to rate this podcast wherever you've listened to it. And please share with others you know who would benefit from this conversation. I appreciate you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by myself and Chris James. Music by my talented friend, Ayana Witter-Johnson. 